Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Kanturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. I'm bear with me for few episodes as this is my first time recording. Hope you guys enjoy. Hello everyone. I have Kevin Barhide. He is a YouTube creator and an author of Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. His YouTube channel creates a safe space of survivors of abandonment, child sexual abuse and addiction to explore the healing process. His life is summed up with these eight words to be of service to God and others. As a YouTube creator, actor, educator and disability technology evangelist, as a son, husband, father and friend, he gives of himself with one expectations that you can only keep what you have by giving it away. And I love that sentence and welcome to the show Kevin. Thank you so much Smita. Please go ahead talk about your story in your words. Smita, you know it's funny. Thank you. We we talked a little bit about our names at the beginning and you just introduced me as Kevin Barheit and I was double checking the pronunciation Smita and I was saying it's Smita and you know it's great that we have names. My name is Kevin Barheit. Um, my name is also Stephen Michael and I was adopted uh, when I was very little. Uh, my biological mother could not care for me uh, and there's a long story behind that and the parents that adopted me were wonderful people. My mother is 91 years old. I'm in my studio basement here. She's right upstairs above me keeping the volume down so <laughs> and it's wonderful to have these relationships with people based on who we think they are and who, who we know they are. And you and I have only known each other a bit and yet you just talked about some connections that you and I made. Some of that was because we talked for quite a while and had some introductory uh, conversations which which were fun because I got to meet part of your family and you know through the videos through the YouTube channel you've gotten a chance to meet me. You've gotten a chance to meet the little boy that was adopted. You have gotten a chance through the 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 radio call in that you listened to to meet the little boy that was abused, sexual abused. And now you get to talk to me as the man that's 35 years sober after uh, many years of addiction and alcoholism. And there's all these different facets we have to who we are, who we present ourselves as, and who we want the world to see, but also who do we want to see in the mirror, right? As I'm looking at you, I'm not just seeing you, I'm seeing me in you. And I know that you're looking at me and you're seeing a reflection of yourself in me. Those are important aspects to, I think, why I do what I do. You love the story. You love the, 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 the piece that um, you can only keep what you have by giving it away. It's important to know what you have. It's important to know what my worth is, what my value is, what I have been given what the blessings in my life are because I can't give anything away that I don't know exists. My story goes way back, as you know, after I was adopted, much of what happened to me was normal for a kid until I was nine years old. And I was molested by a 4-H leader when I was nine. And he was about a 20-year-old man. And that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen to me. It shouldn't happen to anyone. But these things happen. They happen on a regular basis, on a daily basis, sadly. And there's many of us that do find recovery. And there's many of us that struggle with recovery and struggle with our life situations. Then, even if things do work out from the adoption, the abandonment, the, addic the, the abuse, the, the thing that happened to me, though, was the addiction. 
And that started at a very young age when I was only about 11 years old with drinking and then quickly, quickly evolved to drugs and a lifestyle that turned into a pretty horrible ending. I had a lot of problems by the time I was a teenager. I was taken back out of that same home that I was adopted, put into the foster care system, one foster home, then another, a group home, detention center. And by the time I was 15, I was placed back with my adopted family. But I don't want to say this literally, but it was too late. The things that had broken inside of me were not quite fixable at that stage in my life, especially were not fixable by me. So if I can ask you a question here, like when you mentioned you started your addiction very early on, so you know what has happened to you or like what is happening with you is wrong. Because the reason to ask that question is it's so important to understand, like to identify your problem first off, whether you are getting addicted with it, whether you are getting any other depression or anything is like a secondary. First off, identify your problem. So I, I'm not really sure, like most of the people in those ages, now we have this awareness camps or like education to the kids where they can understand like, okay, inappropriate touch or any of these things. At that time we were not, at least I was, even for me, I was never taught about all those things. So when you say like, yes, you got into addiction or with those things. So you already identified that there is something wrong going on around you? It's a good question and it's a fair question. And I think that one of the ways that I've described this is uh, the first thing that happened was the abandonment. But I was born, I didn't know what was happening. I had no idea how that was affecting me. We call that in many circles, we call that the primal wound because there was a tearing away. The abuse that happened at nine, I never knew it was abuse. I didn't call it abuse. And like you said, good touch, bad touch, we don't understand. And there's something that is well known in the, uh, in the helping world. Uh, when it comes to children that are abused, they're not usually just abused on day one. They're, they're groomed and the grooming that happens, happened to me, happened to the other boys that were with me, half of them especially who were in the same abusive relationship as I was. That wasn't something by the time it happened, it didn't seem like there was anything wrong. It didn't seem like there was anything out of the ordinary happening. As a matter of fact, we felt special. We felt, we felt like we were in a, an adult world that we were being invited in to explore. And no one, I think, in that room, and especially I know from me, identified that as what it was, which was pedophilia. It was sex, child sexual abuse. And it was something that rewired me and broke me in a way that I couldn't identify for many years. Mm -hmm. The addiction, I think, in answer to your question, was most likely a combination of reasons why that took hold as young as it did. I do agree that the, the abuse that happened was definitely, could be seen as a catalyst for when I started to abuse alcohol and drugs. I also think that the earlier sense of displacement and this not, not understanding how I fit in, not understanding how and where I belonged in the family I was in and the world I was in. Sure, my mother and father loved me and there's no doubt in my mind they did their best. But back then in the 60s, there weren't, there weren't a lot of information on 
how to speak to children about this. There wasn't a lot of YouTube videos where people talked about this. YouTube didn't exist. Cell phones, this is very pre-technology. But one of the things that seemed to happen to me was within my small family, it was understood I was adopted. But everywhere else, even with teachers, with friends in school, with their family, things like that. Do you have any brothers and sisters? And my answer would always be, I don't know, I'm adopted. Because it was natural for me to say that. And they'd say, oh, so those aren't your real parents. And there was this real separation from what I thought everyone else's life was to what mine was. When I finally got clean and sober, when my life changed was on January 1, 1986. That happened first. I cleaned up from the drugs and alcohol first. Only after I was able to really start to see a little bit more clearly, did I even recognize the abuse that had happened. It took a therapist. It took some very deep therapy. And I had to literally ask my therapist, can, can I ask you something? Hmm. She said, yeah. and I said, well, when I was nine years old, this happened. What, what was that? And she said, Kevin, you were molested. And I said, oh, okay. I, I, I was 25 years old at this time. And then I said, can I ask you another question? When I was 15 and I was downtown in Schenectady on J Street and these two men took me into this room and this happened, what was that? And she said, Kevin, you were gang raped. And I said, oh, oh okay. Okay, now, and some of the wheels started to turn. And the real question was, what do I do now? And it wasn't until that point when I could look back and say, oh, the abuse happened and then my life changed. And then the drinking and then the drugs and then the prostitution and then the life of feeling like I was a very little and even negative worth or value except to the people who would abuse me. That's when that took hold and that's when that changed. But it wasn't until I was 25 when I could look back and the healing began. It was a very difficult healing process because first and foremost, there was enormous shame, enormous. That was an undertaking that I didn't think I could, I could lift that and I couldn't. I couldn't lift it without help. I couldn't lift it without a 12 step program and people that really supported me. And I couldn't lift it without a higher power in my life. So I'm understanding that I was loved and cared for outside of just being, and pardon the expression, but a piece of meat, uh, just, just, just a body. So I hope that answers your question because it really was a very long journey from getting clean and sober to understanding the abuse. And it wasn't until I'd say about maybe 13, 15 years ago when I started to look at the adoption and how that affected me and how that uh, really changed who I was. And I do believe that that was the first rewiring. That was the first neurological change that happened to me that set me on that trajectory. You know, a, a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people look at someone like me and they see, they see a, a middle-aged man. I hate to say that out loud, but they see a, you know, <laughs> well-educated, well-spoken, uh, fairly well-dressed. I like my pink shirt here, you know, uh, short sleeves. I'm just, you know, just a guy, just a guy from Schenectady, New York, living in a little town called Niskayuna. And then they might know me for several months and then maybe they meet me in the wintertime and I've got a long sleeve on and we're all packed in on clothes. And then summer comes and I have a short sleeve. 
And then I reach out like this and my sleeve will come up and they'll see, they'll say, Kevin? And I'm like, yeah, what? You have a tattoo? And I'm like, <laughs> uh, oh yeah, and they're like, can, and then it's, can I look at it? And they, they get really scared and they look at the snake with a dagger and a rose and it's all this. And they say, wow, I can't believe you have a tattoo. And of course I have a little fun and I say, well, I have three tattoos now. You have three? And I said, yeah, I have this one. I said, I have one on each shoulder. They said, what is it? And I said, well, it's two dragon heads. And they said, really? I said, yeah. And I got the whole dragon down my back and the, and the tails go around my legs. <laughs> really? And I said, no, I have a bird and a butterfly. <laughs> I haven't looked in so long. I don't know which shoulder has the bird and which shoulder has the butterfly. One's a butterfly, one's a hummingbird. The point is that don't judge a book by its cover. And you may think you know me just by looking at me or any friend or coworker or someone you meet, but we all have stories. We all have pieces behind the book cover. And those stories are worth telling, but they're even more so worth listening to. Because when I hear your story, I can see that reflection of myself. And that allows me to maybe begin the process of understanding myself better and if necessary, healing and becoming who I'm supposed to be next. Where the piece really changed for me was that I was able to recognize that I had a very broken view, not only of the world around me, but of how the world saw me and how I saw myself. Because I couldn't see the love that people had for me. I couldn't see that my parents loved me and they weren't perfect, don't get me wrong. Everyone has their, their flaws. But I couldn't see that the, the social workers, the therapists, even when I was in the United States Navy before they threw me out of the Navy because I you know, was really bad off. Uh, alcohol and drugs really took me down the road. I signed up for three years and made it 18 months. But before they asked me to leave, they tried to help. They asked me, you know, can we help you? And I just was in such deep, what we call denial. But the denial wasn't simply me denying I had a problem. It was denying that I had value. It was denying that I had worth or that I had a place in this world that could be anything more than whatever somebody needed it to be. And if that means that you needed me to buy you a drink or give you some drugs or give you my body, that's what I did. And I had a real misunderstanding would be a very I think polite way of saying it, but a very skewed view of how people really saw me, uh, the good people, the healthy people, the wonderful people in the world. And that was, I think, the big eye opener for me because when I finally stepped out of the hell that I was in and I saw that I, I couldn't survive like this anymore, I was suicidal. I wanted to kill myself. Actually, I said this the other day, and I think I'll use this word. I didn't feel like I should even be allowed to kill myself. I felt like I should just be, a, I should be annihilated. I should just be vaporized, disappeared. I shouldn't have been here to begin with. And that has to do a lot, I think, with the adoption. We don't feel, I didn't feel a lot of value from that. Uh, but also the life I had lived had gone down pretty deep into, uh, you know, prostitution and uh, drug addiction and, and drug dealing and arrests and jail time and all the things that I think many people talk about as their, their bottoms, their real low bottoms. And 
I think the deepest, the deepest change that came for me was when I realized that I wasn't able to lift myself out of this. And I was going to not be able to stop that behavior until I recognized that I needed to accept the help that was out there, that was available to me. That started, I believe, with a very, very specific incident which is when I felt, we call it a white light moment, you know, where you really feel like you're just something, something supernatural, something spiritual, something wonderful, speaks to you, lifts you up, shows you something, clears your mind. And it was simply this, maybe I need help. Just, I couldn't understand that that was the key, the word maybe. The word maybe was better than anything I had ever heard before. Because before that, for a long time, I heard, you need to stop. You have a problem. You need help. You have to do this. And I couldn't hear that. But when I heard the words maybe, and again, that was a very divine moment for me, I, I, could, I could look at that as a possibility. I could look as that, at that as an option. And when I reached out for help from a woman named Jane McCarthy, who had been my, my therapist when I was in the group homes, and I just kept in touch with her for years, I would call her when I went to jail. Before I called somebody to bail me out or my lawyer, I'd call her and she'd say, Kevin, why are you calling me? I just want to talk. Somehow I wanted to continue to reach out to somebody I knew cared, even though I, I knew they couldn't help me. And when I did reach out to her this one time, she said to me, Kevin, look at you. And I was sweating and I was, you know, breathing, hyperventilating. I couldn't catch my breath and I, my eyes were bulging out of my head because I was detoxing and didn't even know it. I had stopped the drugs and alcohol, but I was emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually just panicking. And I said, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me? And she said, well, Kevin, Why I don't know. Stop that? Why did you stop all these drinking drugs and all these things? It's not the obvious answer, but I will give it to you straight up. I heard it already, but yeah, I oh. want the audience to hear. Oh, that's true. You've listened to me before, so you, okay, okay, that was good. I, um, most people stop because things have gotten too bad. Most people stop because somebody has suggested that they get help. I didn't have any of that. I had, I was still at the bottom of a bottom. But the problem was that even with all the drugs and alcohol that I was ingesting, I had no way to pay for them. So not only was I, I was working a, a late night shift in a factory making money, but I would steal money, borrow money, get money from my girlfriend, deal, do whatever I had to do. And I still was broke all the time and couldn't pay my bills. So I had an, I had an objective. My objective was to make a New Year's resolution, to quit drugs and alcohol for one year. So I could save enough money so I could buy enough drugs so I could deal drugs and never have to buy them again. That was my entrepreneurial idea. I was a high school dropout. I was so sick I couldn't spell my last name and I didn't know what the word entrepreneurial was, but I had a plan. And that's it. It was money. It was me being broke. And in my, what I'll be honest, was a very simple-minded way. I made a decision to try to better my life and the way I thought I would better my life would be by saving enough money for a year so I could buy drugs and never have to buy them again, just deal them. So you can see there's a little bit of a disconnect between trying to make your life better and actually slowly killing yourself. 
when when Jane talked to me that day, though, which was just about a week after that moment, which was January 1, 1986, Jane looked at me and she said those magic words. She said, Kevin, you just might be an addict and alcoholic. Again, maybe, might. Magic words, maybe, might. And so I was able to say, well, if I am, what do I do? You see, it was that progressive, I might have a problem. And if I do, what might I do? And I did it. I made a phone call. I made another phone call. I started going to 12-step meetings. I got a sponsor. I got therapy. I connected with people. And my life, not magically, not quickly, but definitely miraculously changed and got better. And that's the path that I've been on for a long time. And you and I spoke already. And again, I, I almost forget sometimes that you did listen to an hour and a half. So you probably know more about me than I could even remember. But I tend to just speak in the moment, honestly, in response to the people that I'm with. And I tend to be very trusting that whatever's going to come out of a conversation is what's meant to. And I don't plan so much as I trust in my own, of course, abilities, my own speaking ability, my own knowledge, my clarity, but I trust that I'm a vessel. I trust that the word I think I used yesterday when I was talking to a fellow that I know, David. Hi, David, if you're watching. David and I were talking about, and he's, he's a very, he's a brilliant guy. You're brilliant, David, you're a genius. He is, he'll love me saying this. And he's a, he manages people in this wonderful semiconductor industry and he's really brilliant. And the two of us were talking about the word conduit. Hmm. I used the word and then I realized I was talking to an you know, uh, engineer and I said, oh, you probably know more about that word than I do. And, he, and it was true, but a conduit just isn't, if I'm part of a conduit, then I can funnel things through me. But the important thing is that as I'm with you, and anyone that's listening to this or watching this today, I'm also receiving. Yeah. The, conduit, the conduit is an openness, an openness and a clarity of openness between you and I right now. And I have to trust that whatever's coming through me to you is what's supposed to. And I have to be open to whatever's coming from you. And of course, we want to be careful and you know, keep ourselves safe and healthy. We don't want to be a conduit to something that's going to be dangerous for us or hurtful, right? But I don't believe, I think at this point in my life, I've got a little bit of, if not wisdom, I've got enough. You introduced me in a way I don't think anyone ever has. I've got some humility. In the <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard anyone introduce me that way, but it's wonderful because you got it. And somebody asked me the other day on a podcast to end with a quote. And I know we're not quite ending here, but I wanna throw that quote out in the middle. And the quote was from Richard. Hi, Richard. You can hear me now. The quote was this. If I do not become humble, I will be humiliated. And I've learned that over and over and over again. It's really a mantra of mine. I don't want to be humble in a way that I cower. I'm not a doormat. I kneel before no man. I bow down to no one except my higher power, so to speak. But if I do not become humble, that's when I think I am the higher power. If I do not, do not become humble, that's when I think I have the answers. I don't have to be a conduit. I just have to give to you. And that's when, oh my goodness, if I'm not able to give and receive, the humility goes out the window 
and I end up being humiliated and usually have to learn a very hard lesson. I want to ask a few, I mean, a few questions. I'll just start with this one. You might have heard other kids are, I mean, after this happened to you, you might have heard somewhere even in the news that something happened to someone like this, the way that happened to you. How important do you think the support from parents understanding the kids and the society are the circles they are in and what kind of a support that you actually like think it would be better in that kind of situations? It's a great question and no one's asked me that. And, and first I'll say that I do, I do open myself to news um, and uh, things that are not just so interpersonal, but just coming up. I'm careful with that, by the way. And I just want to make a quick, quick comment about that because I think that especially because I was abused and even though I'm, you know, have gone a certain distance in the healing process, I, I need to take these things in when I'm prepared to take them. In. And I need to read about maybe an abuse that happened uh, with a, uh, with an understanding that if I need to, if I need to put that down, if I need to put the phone down and put the article down, uh, that's okay. I don't have to, I don't have to take this in all the time. Mm. I, but in answer to your question, I think it's, again, back when I was young, there, were, there weren't a lot of support systems in yeah. place that were as knowledgeable as they are now. But I got to be honest, I think even with all the knowledge and information we have now, uh, one of the things that um, I think that people miss often, and this is uh, well-documented, and I could send you some links on this, and there's a, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a publication, online publication called Mad in America. And Mad in America talks a lot about how we misdiagnose, we missee things. A diagnosis is simply an observation in which we make a decision on how to help, how to treat, how to adjust. And we do that so much in many ways with medication because we are looking at children that are maybe like me, suffering from abuse. And instead of digging underneath the behavior, to really try to understand what's been happening. Where is this feeling coming from? Where is this acting out coming from? Where is this oppos oppositional defiant behavior coming from? The root cause for. Right, we, we medicate. We, and I'm not saying which medications are good and bad. I don't have opinions on a lot of that. I have been depressed in my life. 10 years ago, my dad died. And unbeknownst to me, I slowly went into a depression and did need medication. I don't think pro or con about the benefits of some medication. One of the studies, though, that many of the studies and some of the articles I've read recently talk about, it's the consistency, the long-term goals of the medication are to fix these brain chemistry issues, which I completely agree I've got some of those. And I can't say that we can undo all of the rewiring that happened to me by meditating three times a day, by doing talk therapy. There might be needs for medication. There might be needs for intervention, but it's very difficult to treat something when you have misdiagnosed it. And I think that parents are the first line of defense or the first line of analysis would be even the better way. Um, I do know that I raised my, uh, my children with an understanding of the risks that, the, that they were in, the, the dangers that they're in. And it was very difficult for me uh, to let them go, say to a sleepaway, or to trust them with, with uh, even staying overnight at someone else's house. 
but I did exactly what you were talking about without trying to scare them or worry them or, or harm their, or I didn't want to rewire them either. I don't want to make them fight or flight neurologically uh, self-destructive, uh, but I would talk to them before they went, sometimes check in, check in on them wherever they are. And when they came back, I would have gentle conversations and there's wording that there's wording ways that we can speak to them that really help to bring that out because it can't be, it usually isn't. Hey, so when you were having that sleepover, did uh, any of the parents come and abuse you and touch it? You know, they were, sometimes if it's already happened, the grooming has happened. So the questions are usually about grooming. Can you tell me if they've ever, you know, put their hand on you, you know? Yeah, they did that a lot yesterday. Or they did that a lot last week. You know, you may hear things. You've got to look for, I, I hate to use the word signs, but you've got to look for these telltale signs that at least will invite the conversation to conclusions and start blaming and overprotecting. So it's never an easy fix. But remember, most of the children that are abused are abused by people that they know. They're not abused by strangers. They're abused. They're abused by relatives, they're abused by neighbors, they're abused by teachers, social, you know, doctors. It, it just, the list goes on and on, but they're people that you see every day. Yep, because I, I think for the, one of the reasons for that is like, the only thing that always we teach to the kids are like, we were taught is like, do not go and talk to strangers or like, do not go out with strangers and things like that. But the people, but our parents or anybody will trust the known people. So that I, I, I think that is the reason for it to happen with the closed circle all the time. It does. And we live in a wonderful world. And I think there's extraordinary, extraordinary health and well-being in my neighborhood and in, in my town and in the country and in the world. And I have a, um, uh, a partner in life who is from another country. And, you know, it, it's, it's in Japan and there's wonders there and beautiful people. And the word I want to really look for is there's wonderful community, powerful community. But within each community, there will be uh, danger, there will be some unhealthy behaviors. Um, and we have to understand that that is a part of life. It is not going to go away. I can't see us ever eradicating it. My point and my reason for doing everything I do, my reason for the YouTube channel, which talks about things that most people don't want to talk about, abandonment, self-worth issues, uh, child sexual abuse is a very difficult thing to say out loud. It rolls off my tongue like I'm talking about a car wash, and it's not. It's very serious. And addiction and recovery, those are things that are in some ways still very difficult in our community and in our society to talk about. And I don't think I'm going to remove the difficulty. I don't think that I want to demystify the words either. But if I can just reduce the stigma one little bit at a time so that we can have these conversations, and we can understand that there's healing and the healing can happen. My reason for the YouTube channel, which talks about things that most people don't want to talk about. Abandonment, self-worth issues, uh, child sexual abuse is a very difficult thing to say out loud. It rolls off my tongue like I'm talking about a car wash and it's not, it's very serious. And addiction and recovery, those are things that are in some ways still very difficult in our community and in our society to talk about. And I don't think I'm going to remove the difficulty. I don't think that I want to demystify the words either. But 
if I can just reduce the stigma one little bit at a time so that we can have these conversations and we can understand that there's healing and the healing can happen and it won't always happen. I do know that people die. I do know that addicts overdose and it won't always happen. I do know that people die. I do know that addicts overdose. I have just this month had to celebrate and I say celebrate uh, the birthday of a young man who died just several years ago. It was, he would have been 25 this month. And he died of an overdose of fentanyl. And that shouldn't have happened. He was one of the most beautiful, loving, wonderful individuals you'll ever, ever, ever know. And he's the same age as my oldest son. And to think that the two of them should be sitting side by side, looking at you know a video on YouTube and laughing. And one is my son probably upstairs doing that now and the others not here anymore. It's absolutely devastating, but we can't, I don't want to let that be my powerlessness. I do not have control over the world around me like that. I can't fix everything. And I don't want to feel that everything around me is broken because I don't believe it is. Uh, but all I can do is focus on my healing myself. And when I wrote Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, Dear, remember I told you my name is Kevin Barheit. My name is also Stephen Michael. When I wrote Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, that was because people would hear my story about the search for my biological family. And they'd say, Kevin, you have to write this. And a lot of people said, write that story about the adoption and the search. And I really thought long and hard and I realized I can't. I can't write just that story. I have to write the whole story. Hmm. And it was very difficult. It was very tricky. It was very hard to do that, to write two stories that alternate back and forth. I'm adopted. I'm born. I'm, you know, 40 years old looking for my family. I'm nine years old. I'm looking for my, you know, to do that was very difficult technically, the, the writing skills, which I wasn't sure if I could have the chops for that. But that was the only way I could tell the story. And I think that that's important. I'm telling my story, not so that you can learn how to tell my story, but that you can maybe you can have a piece of confidence and hope that you could tell a little slice of your story and start to start to weave that that storyline for yourself because I believe that's there's a great deal of healing in storytelling. It was very tricky. It was very hard to do that to write two stories that alternate back and forth. I'm adopted. I'm born. I'm you know 40 years old looking for my family. I'm nine years old. I'm looking for my you know to do that was very difficult technically. The, the writing skills, which I wasn't sure if I could have the chops for that, but that was the only way I could tell the story. And I think that that's important. I'm telling my story, not so that you can learn how to tell my story, but that you can, maybe you can have a piece of confidence and hope that you could tell a little slice of your story and start to start to weave that, that storyline for yourself. Cause I believe that's, there's a great deal of healing in storytelling. So another question that I had was like, let's just say that you are talking to a child and you wanted them to come out if something happened, whatever you're doing with your own children. Likewise, if, for example, in schools, teachers are talking to the kids, what other kind of educational facilities are like education that can be provided to kids to actually make them aware like, yeah, there is something happening like this. If it is not happening with you, it might be happening with your friend be there and stand up for them. Or like try to understand them and support them in a different way. What 
kind of an education or like how you wanted to have that kind of a change? The changes I would like to see is more consistency. And I think that there is a real galvanizing effort within the school systems, right? And I think that's a really primary thing because we teach our kids math and English. We also teach them, you know, about uh, some life skills. And, and you know, just for instance, we fall short in some ways. One of them would be literally, this is just off the cuff here, but financial literacy is not really taught well in the school systems, the K through 12. So I think that this could be another piece that we could be more consistent with. If we expect our children to grow up to be well-rounded adults that can be a part of society and heal, we have to be able to be consistent in our messaging to them. And hiding these topics is not gonna help. So I think the school system is one place. I think, of course, we've talked about parental. So I think parental within the family. Again, the important thing, and this is why I say it over and over again, it's consistency. Don't have the talk once, have the talk often. And those four things, my kids know this. This is off the child abuse piece, but I would say to them, I would say uh, early on when they're very young, I talked to them about drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, and sex. And that does include sexual abuse or anything. And we used to have long talks about it. I would say, has anything like this, any drugs in your life, your friends? And then those long talks, the kids got so used to it that I would say, hey, and they'd say, no. (laughs) Okay, but at least let me, and they're like, okay, go ahead. And I'm like, cigarettes? I I would always say, I think I would say, uh, alcohol? No. Drugs? No. Cigarettes? No. Sex? No. Okay. You know, it became, what I'm, what I'm going to say is it became shorthand. Yes. Uh, a shorthand wasn't circumventing the conversation. It was reducing the stigmatizing effect of the conversation. And now <laughs> I could, I could drag both my kids right in here right now, stand them right next to me. And I'd say, drugs? No. You know, alcohol? No. Cigarettes? No. Sex? And they're adults, so they'd say, <clears throat> and I'd say, yes, none of my business. But <laughs> when, they're, when they're young, we want to have these, there's a couple of things that happens there. Number one, you destigmatize, but number two, you, you, you build a trust, yes. right? And the kids aren't going to be open. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be open even as an adult with somebody who I didn't feel that wasn't going to take that information and help me. If I felt they were going to take it and then make my life harder, make it more confusing, so my, I think that was, I'm not, I'm not a perfect parent. I was a dad, I wasn't dastardly, but I was definitely not perfect. But that was part of the parenting. My, my wife is also a social worker. So I think there's a lot of things that I learned from her. And then from my recovery and my journey, I was able to bring the two of us really worked hard. You gotta work hard as parents, consistency. The schools, consistency. In the medical field, doctors should have this as an intake observation. I don't say questions, but observation. And I think they do. I think many of the best ones do. And even just part of the course is just, that's part of what their training is to look for bruises, to look for signs, to look for this. But we, in our medical system, we really, you know, people, it's almost like a puppy mill, right? We put everybody through so quickly and things get missed. We can't miss this. We can't. Do you think the teachers need to be educated on how to respond to the kids that are coming to them and opening up these kind of a conversation? May not be the full length conversation where they say like, yes, this happened to me like so-and-so, but at least like 
something is happening to me that doesn't feel okay with me. So they don't have to like, what kind of are like, do you think the teachers really need to have that kind of an education or like the training to talk to kids and understand like what's going on to them and take an action afterwards after hearing to them? Well, uh, Smith, and now you're talking about something I know well. I have a master's in education. I work in higher education, but my wife is in the K through 12. And I, I think a lot about this. And I also have an understanding. And I think that the, a lot of the good schools do. And I think, let me just be more direct. All schools do. All the training that teachers are getting for the last 15, 10, 15 years at least, have really included a large piece of that. What they don't have is certifications to be able to actually be therapeutic in their conversations because it's, it's, like a doctor. it's like a doctor, a doctor or a police officer, right? They're trained to do what they do and they get one day of training to deal with, you know, something that is, yeah. police officers would be a good example now. And I have a great love for, uh, I know some police officers personally that are doing some wonderful work. Hi, hi, Ernie. Hi, Joe. And, you know, Ernie and Joe, they, they have a documentary and it's wonderful because it's about how we can change our system uh, to understand that the same kind of training we need to do to have police be able to do their jobs to apprehend and to do the, we need to have that, that, um, that other piece that comes into play that has empathy involved, that has that moment of stepping back and realizing, am I dealing with somebody who's a criminal element or am I dealing with somebody who has a, some psychological baggage or maybe mental illness or just something going on. Take those few moments before you act. Same thing with teachers. I think the teachers are being taught now and trained well. It, yeah. just, it just depends on the institution that they are in after they are educated. So really, if you go into a school system, and this is again, a big topic for me, but if you go into a school system where the, most of the kids are stable, and you've got a stable parental involvement, and you've got a stable uh, monetary um, base for the for the faculty and for the administrator. In other words, if the school is well run, and everything in relation to school is working well, and you don't have those struggles, then you can have that that time because really a lot of it is time to be able to sort through some of the things you might see. Because remember, a teacher cannot fix these unless they observe these. They can't even apply their skills unless they take this time to observe and, as you said, say, hmm, you're not feeling well. Anything going on at home? Anything going on here? But I think that we don't have time. I think teachers are overworked. Exactly. I think, they're on, I, you know, I think there's a whole big topic around that. Yeah. And I think in certain school systems, it's, it's not impossible for them to be able to be anything more than, uh, they can't do much more than a casual observation and then pass it off to somebody like a social worker or a therapist or the school psychologist who might be able to help. And there's so many pieces in that puzzle. There's so many pieces in that. And I, I'm gonna say it's not a puzzle. Children aren't puzzles, but they are a mystery. And if you, <laughs> you know this because we have children, they aren't a puzzle that we need to solve. They're a mystery that we need to observe and be a part of. And I'm looking for clues. I'm not looking for the missing puzzle piece because then I'm look. It's, it's a puzzle piece. It's never going to fit right. But when I find a clue, the question isn't, is that clue 
the clue I was looking for that gives me the answer. Mm. Question is, what does that clue tell me about finding the next clue? Mm. There's a great deal of work being done on this now. I do believe, and I would hope that folks like me, and there are other people out there that actually do this professionally. I do it just on the YouTube channel and the book and things like that and podcasts, but people go to institutions. They'll go to uh, you know, an auditorium and talk to a, an entire administration at a school, all the teachers, all the social workers, all the principals and vice principals, and they'll make it clear that you know, there are issues, right? And, and, but that they are, if not solvable, they are approachable. They are something that we can address. We can't, and, and I think again, part of it is training, which I think they're getting some good, but part of it is literally time and you have to be more than observational. You have to have deep, a deep willingness to spend the, any time you do have to look for those clues. What kind of a change is that we can expect from a law and order kind of thing? Because I have heard kids are being, when they say like, yes, this happened to me by so-and-so adult, the questions they were asked, those kids were like, what happened to you? What exactly happened? Or like, wait, they are not adults for God's sake. They don't understand that the complete procedure of what has happened or like why it is already they are in trauma. So what changes need to be brought into the law and order systems for the kids to be like, okay, I can talk. I can talk to the extent that I understand. I don't have to like get into the depth of for them to understand me. It's I, I'd be way out of my depth to give any uh, policy changes. And no, I'd I'm be, not talking about policy changes, at least like for a thought's sake. Gotcha. Gotcha. No. And I think so. so yeah, I do think while I, I would be way out of my depth to talk about policy or institutional changes. But I, I think what I was thinking about when I heard you bring that up is that the police and the organizations, whether it be the law enforcement or the judicial system in general, yes. they can, no matter how, and they're not perfect, we all know, but no matter how, no matter how hard they try, they can only do what they can do with the information they have. Mm. And, and again, you know, they don't have enough time either. They don't have enough money. They don't, there's all those pieces in place, but by the time it gets to them, by the time it gets to, for me, I'll give you, I'm going to give you a pure example. This is back in the seventies, but you know, by the time I got in into, uh, you know, the, the probationary system, uh, Bernie, again, I'm saying hi to everyone tonight was my probation officer. I'm friends with him now after all these years, we, we found each other and it's been wonderful, but Bernie, as much as he really did a great job. And I remember him today as the guy that actually was able to make a change in me, even though I didn't sober up, even though I didn't clean up, even though I kept on a trajectory 14, 15, 16, I went downhill pretty bad after that. Even though things didn't go right, the things he did went well. And he, he let me know that he was there for me. He got us in a group together. We were able to learn trust and dependence, you know, depending on each other in a healthy way. So a lot of the things that he did were great. And I will say that these were probably just the tools of the time. I can almost promise you that say all the boys that were in my group, the majority of us have been abused in one way or another. And Bernie, I don't know if he ever asked because I don't remember anymore, but most people who asked me, they were asking me directly, right? You know, have you, have you ever been sexually abused? I mean, I'm 13, 14 years old. I'm too cool to tell you that. 
and and that's that's a good stop point right here just for a second for me and and you it's a different story i'm not saying it's easier for a woman or a girl to speak about that but it's a different dynamic than it is for a man for i've been told over and over again i had a great talk today with uh, uh shannon uh, who's another friend of mine and is a psychologist and we talked about that how rare it is for a man to talk about the abuse and it's the, same, it's the same thing with a boy with a young boy you ask him if he's ever been sexually abused like, what are you talking about exactly. you've got to find a way to get the clue and i think the clues were all right there you know my my beautiful mother who's here right now we we talk about this and it keeps her up i think a little bit it shakes her a little bit when we talk about it but in a healthy way because she feels like how did i miss this and it's okay we're human but you know you don't ever want this to happen to your child the beauty of it is that in this conversation we're having healing can happen but back to your question about the law enforcement in these procedures if there's consistency the reason yeah. for me to ask that question is like i was talking about the same topic to another person the other day for a different episode so what kind of information they can give you if you can't find any bodily proofs that you are looking for and, and that's I, why i'm asking like yeah what kind of a changes that we need to look for and i think i spoke to it and this is where i wanted to go with this if there are clues already gathered and i use the word clues if there's information observational information so if there are already some clues some information that the police can go to that pediatrician that they can go to the teachers that they can go to other family members you know if they can piece together the clues if they can find that path and those clues cannot be available unless each one of these other institutions are doing their best to make those observations document them and make sure that they are well established as an understanding that we think there's something that might be amiss here and that way by the time you know it rises up to that level of uh parental um i don't want to use the word accusations but a parental reporting uh there are there are immediate connection of the the first thing i would want the police to do is say can you give me the pediatrician's name i want your pediatrician's name i want any doctors that they've seen what hospital have they gone to in the past it's just about record keeping and it's about having information and i think that that is really not a database thing it's not something to put a name in and get a report back you need to make phone calls you need to talk to that doctor you need to talk to those teachers you need to talk to the administrators it's about police are very good at this the institutions we're talking about are actually trained well to do this piecing together the clues the the clue can should not be cannot be you know just a piece of physical evidence you have to have an understanding of the and i'm going to use this word the holistic nature of abuse there's a holistic nature of healing there's also a holistic nature of abuse it doesn't happen usually in one point in time that you can report prove it it's done it's much more nuanced than that what i have heard from her was like though the abuser himself admitted that he did something to the kids since they don't have this evidences so called evidences they just let him go right there's a there's a lot of brokenness and i did listen to that uh episode because it's very powerful and so i think the one that you sent me when we were chatting and it's also a lot a lot more typical than we would like to say and i think that one of the things we find often is a child will make mention right mm -hmm. 
and they make mention, they will be dismissed. And once they're dismissed once, even if the child's nine years old, if they're dismissed once, they're going to be much more hesitant to ever, ever say it again. And that goes with anything. And again, some of this is really about the understanding of how words and our behavior affects everyone. Um, you know, there's there's a phrase called gaslighting, which is telling somebody that what they you know what they think is true is not true. It's like no, it's a beautiful sunset. Yeah, I love the color purple. No, that's not purple. It's green. No, it's purple. No, it's green. It's green, and you just don't see it right. Yes. And that happens more often than we would like. And children are readily, immediately affected and changed by that. So if there's a narcissistic personality, which typically a pedophile will have a narcissistic personality or narcissism will be a part of their patterns, it's extremely likely that that played a part in the grooming. So by the time the abuse happened, most, I don't know how to say this with any expertise, but most pedophiles actually want to get caught. They don't want, they want to be stopped is a better way to say it. There's an inner brokenness to them that's beyond mine or your comprehension, right? To live like that is absolutely horrifying. And it's not saying that I have a genuine heart for my abuser, but the deeper I have an understanding of their sickness, and that's what it is, a mental illness and a spiritual, I think, malady, um, the more I understand their suffering, the more I can have, I guess the best word would be, if not sympathy, none, empathy, yes. I have to have that because without the empathy, I, I won't be able to forgive. And without forgiveness, I can't, can't move on very well. But I think that's the biggest thing is understanding that we, all of us, in how we talk to our kids, interact with our kids, every teacher, every doctor, every police officer, every parent, everyone, we affect their ability to communicate with us. That's why, again, you know, my four things, you know, drugs, no, cigarettes, no, sex, no, you know, but, but those are the things we, we can't do right, but we can practice, we can practice. The important thing for me to remember at the end of any of these sessions is that I hope that my goal is always that um, originally, especially at its core, if, if anyone watching this, if it helps just one person, it was worth every second. And we're so grateful. Both of us are so grateful for the time you spent with us today. Um, and again, my real effort, and I think your effort and our effort is to make these conversations more, um, uh, if not habitual, because we don't want to talk about these all the time and we don't want to make them casual. We want to make them possible. And this is the possibility that leads to healing. This is the incredible chance, and it's just an opportunity, guys, that we have to take a small step, just a small step. And we may fall down backwards in two minutes, but then we get up and we take one more step, but we don't do it alone. We do it in community. Have hope. Everybody have hope. Have confidence. And let's do it together. We can do this. I promise you we can do this. Okay, thank you for tuning in and you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.